Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Rob Maver, a former CFL player and two-time Grey Cup winner. He's a senior underwriter at Calvert Mortgages. In this show, we talk about mortgage investment companies, MIX for short, bridge financing, and how they're able to help someone with bruised credit. Plus, we talk about how strategic investors are leveraging financing on multifamily burrs using commercial financing to pull out up to 95% loan-to-value using CMHC's MLI Select program. Lots of great information shared. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Enjoy the show. Hey, Rob, just want to welcome you to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. How's it going today? Good, good, good. Corey, myself and Calvert, very much appreciate you taking the time for us today. So thank you. Hey, you're very welcome. Maybe we'll just start the show by if you could just tell us about you, your background, and what you're doing right now, where you're at. For sure. So my name's Rob. I'm one of the senior underwriters with Calvert Home Mortgage Investment Corporation. And what we do is we specialize in short-term mortgage lending opportunities. So we do a lot of work with real estate investors, those executing the flip and the burr. We do a lot of bridge loans, quick purchases where another lender couldn't get it done, or if somebody wants to resell for profit or lend on the market value of the home and close with less down payment. We'll also work with people who have been credit challenged before, assist them with some credit rehabilitation and debt consolidation. Yeah, you know, that's what we do. Yeah. So Sherwin Show, him and I dug into your flip and your burrs, but we didn't really touch on bridge financing or credit consolidation. So maybe we'll, during this show, let's dive into that. But Mm -hmm. can we start off? I know you kind of got a unique background. You were in the CFL. So I want the listeners to hear about that first before we kind of get into the lending stuff. Sounds good. I had the best seat in the house. I just kicked a ball and then I watched everybody else play for all the other plays in the game. So played at the University of Guelph. I got drafted to the Calgary Stampeders in 2010, played for 10 years, was a part of five Grey Cup teams. We won two of them and it was a ton of fun. I was really fortunate to get drafted out to Calgary. It's an amazing city. It's an affordable city. It's in line with its real estate fundamentals. I would say the economics are, if you will. Love the city, love the outdoors, and enjoyed a career with Stampeders. And now I'm in the mortgage lending business. Super cool. Two great cups. That's amazing. That must have been yeah. such a cool experience. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was great to celebrate it with the city and you know, a lot of good memories bringing the cup around to a few restaurants and bars and some good nights. Awesome. And then, so what did you take in university? So I did two rounds of school. My first round was at the University of Guelph. I did political science and sociology. Then I went back to the University of British Columbia. And in December, I finished a program in urban land economics. The latter was a really great experience. And I would recommend it to any professional in the real estate community. It's awesome to understand economics, law, finance, mathematics, different financial pro forma models to look at how properties will perform understanding investment criteria, appraisal, how real estate business functions, really appreciated that program. And I'm glad that I did it. For sure. Now, when you were in the CFL, was the salary enough to basically, you didn't have to do a side hustle or do a, any other job in the off season? Or were you doing some sort of thing on the in the off season? Yeah, that's a good question. We 
got paid all over the board. Your established players would, you know, be well above six figures. Your practice squad players would go home and need to find a way to make rent the next month. Myself, I was pretty fortunate in that I didn't have to work year round, but I always did. First few years, it was sales jobs. In the middle of my career, I was shadowing different people, figuring out what I wanted to do for a career. Of course, did a stint bartending on 17th through various pubs. That was a ton of fun. And then my second to last year in the CFL, I wound up doing some work in the finance space. And that's how I came to know the people at Calvert. Okay. Well, yeah, it was interesting how you ended up kind of transitioning to where you are today. So mm-hmm. it's from being in the financial space and then you connect with Calvert? Yeah, there was a virtual car dealership, if you will. And we found ways to repurpose that financing into the mortgage space. And then that led me to meeting the Kellers and Jesse Bobrowski and fell in love with the company and how they operate. And I asked them for a job until they said yes. And, you know, that was five years ago. So clearly that was a good decision for everybody involved. For sure. Just curious as a bit of a backstory, are you still involved with football, like high school? Or do you do you do any coaching or anything still? Anything? Yeah, on few occasions, I'll, you know, if some kids looking for some counseling on how to get to the next level, when I say counseling, I mean, how do you go about the recruiting process? How do you present your film? What are some things that they can do to that get to that next step? I'll help them with that. That's far and few between though. Truth be told, I'm very much enjoying living a life without football. It was something that I personally had to work hard at. I was not naturally gifted in any way. And I had to work really hard for any bit of success that I had. So now it's nice to channel my energy elsewhere and really enjoying being a fan. I'll tell all (laughs) the listeners that, you know, it's nice to be a fan and have a different relationship with the sport than one where it was pure work. For sure. For sure. I can see that. Okay, so let's dive into our content. So my first question for you is, what is a MIC? So what is a Mortgage Investment Corporation? Yeah, MIC, Mortgage Investment Corporation, is an alternative investment vehicle for those who want to invest in real estate. So you have your MBS, your mortgage-backed securities. Those are a little bit different than this. But basically, this allows accredited investors to invest into a diversified pool of mortgages. So that's kind of the investor side. The borrower side is that we service people that can't be served, if you will, through traditional lenders. So maybe it's, you know, because of the short-term nature of the loan, because of how quickly they need the funds, you know, maybe it's a credit thing, but we work with other people that the banks can't service. So on the one side, we're an investment vehicle. On the other side, we're servicing, you know, most of the time, extremely high quality clients who just aren't able to find financing elsewhere. For sure. Now, so there's almost, there's two sides to your business. There's the investors that are flipping and doing burrs and different strategies. And then you've also got the accredited investors that are maybe have some capital and they're investing into Calvert. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So we go on, you know, different periods of raising funds. I'm on the underwriting side of the business, so I'm not DR, a dealing representative, if you will, but they do have certain qualifications that they need to meet in order for an investor to be accredited or an industry member. There's certain exemptions there, but they work with individuals who have an understanding and an appreciation for how we deploy their capital. And our goal as a company is to serve those borrowers and at the same time, provide a reliable investment vehicle for our shareholders. For sure. Any ideas to qualify as an accredited investor? Like usually it's like a certain annual income, disposable income, that kind of stuff. You got any some numbers you could share? Yeah, it's a dynamic criteria. It can be net worth, 
It can be income. It can be whether or not you're in the industry. Typically speaking, if you have household income above a quarter million dollars, so 250, or if you have a certain net worth in excess of a certain amount, I think it's a million, don't quote me on that, then you can qualify. There's going to be some other fine print in there too, but ballpark, that's what you're looking at. You know, They're looking to see that you have a good income, that you have some net worth. And then they're also going to look at some other things too, such as concentration of your investments, because being in a MIC isn't necessarily that liquid. You can only redeem at certain periods of the year and also your risk tolerance as well. Yeah, for sure. Those are the numbers that I remember hearing as well for accreditation. But so is there a timeline? Like, is it a, you guys are looking for like 12 months where, where that capital will be held up? Or is there some sort of minimum timeline for people that were investing? Yeah, typically speaking, we're looking for people to invest in us for the long term. If we have to raise our equity all over again every single year, that's going to be time consuming. So we're looking for people who don't necessarily have a one to three year investment horizon. Maybe people who are looking for something a little bit more long term. That way we don't have to raise as much money and they're able to just sit back and watch it grow. Nice. Any idea? Like, can you speak to any sort of percentages on returns? I know there's no guarantee in this type of thing, but just what you've seen historically. Yeah. So this past year, again, you know, past returns are no guarantee of future returns, et cetera. And I need to be careful with how I say this because I'm not a dealing representative, but you know, last year the return was double digits. It was above 10 and the year prior it was above 12. It was almost 13. So we're looking to create value on both sides. Yeah, that's cool. It's interesting to hear because some of my other interviews have always been on the lending side, but this is the other side of that for investors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So what's the difference between a MIC and a private lender? Yeah. So a MIC is going to be more set up like an institutional lender. And what I mean by that is it's going to be professionally run. So that's not to say that individual private investors are, but a MIC has a pool of capital that they can deploy at any given time. They don't have to raise it. Some quick things about a MIC is that they are governed by the Income Tax Act. You need to have at least 20 shareholders and no more than one shareholder cannot own any more than 25% of the shares. So they're looking for some diversification amongst the owners, if you will. Further to that, at least 50% of your capital needs to be loaned out in residential real estate, and it needs to be Canadian real estate. You can accept international funds, I believe, but you cannot loan on those opportunities. Your capital needs to be deployed in national opportunities, if you will. So a MIC is a little bit different in that sense. You know, we are regulated on the investor side. We can only pay licensed brokers, whereas private lenders, it can be a syndicated investment. So multiple people pooling their funds together, or it can be a mom and pop who are sitting on a couple hundred thousand dollars and want to invest in real estate. You know, mix can be a little bit more administrative in the sense that becoming an investor with a MIC is going to take more paperwork and whatnot. Whereas an individual investor, but you get diversification, you know, we have about 900 mortgages on our book right now. And an individual private lender can just be one name on title, one investment, or, you know, Sally, John and Bob are pooling their funds together doing a syndicated mortgage in one. So one's a big pool that's pretty regulated. The other one is individuals and the oversight isn't quite to the same degree, but it's a little bit more simple in some ways as well. Yeah, it's interesting. And then earlier you mentioned MBS. Can you explain what that is and how it's different than the MIC? Yeah, mortgage-backed securities, you know, people that want to invest in a pool of insured mortgages. The insurers guarantee them. CMHC, the government's insurer, guarantees them. 
So basically, it's a pretty stable rate of return because these people are getting their funds through regulated lenders. They're going through stringent underwriting criteria. And in the event of default, those mortgages are insured. So you're not really going to get any losses on a product like that. Whereas with us, we're lending out unsecured funds. So we charge a higher rate of interest to do things that traditional lenders won't do. In some ways, we're taking on an additional risk. In other ways, I would say that we're not. Because we're not lending out insured funds, i.e. there's no guarantee and you know the covenant could be viewed to be a little bit more risky, our investors require a greater rate of return as such. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. As an investor, you're just going to get less return. It's going to be more secure, but you're going to get less return on your investment on an MBS. Yeah. Just on paper. I know you guys, after interviewing Sherwin, that you guys have lots of checks and balances. And it's oh, pretty yeah. interesting to see what you guys do and how you kind of protect your investors, you know, the length you guys go through to, to do that is I found quite interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's interesting. And then uh, are all mixed the same? So like, are the services the same? Or there, can there be differences in them? Yeah, that's a really good question, Corey. So different lenders focus on serving different components and areas of the market. So with us, we really love the short term stuff, we're able to turn over our book, you know, maybe once a year. So we're, you know, getting that money in, getting it back and then getting out again, hopefully in the same year. We focus on the short-term stuff. It's really high touch, but because of that, we believe that we are positioned well against risk because we're not exposed to the market for as long as some other lenders are. And because we have shorter terms too, we're able to move with market pricing quicker as well. So we're pretty agile in terms of our risk and our pricing and our underwriting criteria. I don't wanna say we're like an elastic band, but we're as close as you're gonna see because of how we operate with short-term loans. Typically speaking, most of the time we're lending on a six-month term as well. Other lenders will focus on different things. I've seen some mix do 45-year amortization, 75% loan-to-value, two-year terms. So they're playing the long-term game right there. And a 45-year AM is effectively an interest-only loan for the first 10 years, I would say. But they're charging a lower rate of interest. Some things to consider when comparing mix are, you know, what type of products do they offer? So some of those mix that are doing the 75% loan-to-value loans, maybe they're able to get good debt leverage on the back end in their capital structure. And maybe they're going to be a little bit more stringent on their underwriting. But because of that, they're able to get cheaper capital and they're able to extend lower pricing to their borrowers. So that's just my long-winded way of saying all lenders are different. If you're thinking about investing in a mix, understand what problems they solve for the industry. I would also look at things like how long they've been in operation for, what are their loss ratios, how much does management own of the fund? That'll tell you a lot right there too. No two mix are alike though. We all do different things and our money comes from different places. It has different terms. We're solving different problems. Our underwriting criteria is going to be a little bit different. Everybody's looking to create that differentiation though. Because if we all do the same thing, then you know we're not really adding new value to the market. Yeah, for sure. Now, you mentioned how much does management owned in the fund? Can you kind of expand on that? Yeah. Do the people that run the fund participate in the same risk as their investors? That's a key thing that's fundamental to me. If I'm investing in something, I want to know that the person that is recommending this investment opportunity with me, especially in real estate, is putting their money where their mouth is. So the Keller family owns a pretty big percentage of our fund. And we've been in operation as a mix since 1982. If you see people that are not investing in their own fund, <laughs> I don't want to be sinister, but 
if they're not participating in the same risk that they're selling to their investors, I think people should think about why and ask more questions. Oh, yeah. I would say that's a, definitely a red flag. I mean, if they're not believing in their own fund or they're getting better returns somewhere else, then I would say that's definitely a flag. Yeah, for sure. And then where's most of the capital coming from for Mix? Is it the accredited investors or are there other ways that Mick can raise capital? Yeah, great question. So Mix predominantly are known to be lending out equity. Equity technically is not guaranteed to be repaid. Because of that, they're going to want to be compensated higher for that risk. Mix also have the ability to look at different debt instruments. Debt needs to be repaid first. So with Calvert, we have a syndicate of banks. So a group of banks basically giving us a large line of credit and the debt gets paid first before our equity. And that's being really simple. But basically debt, equity, our money comes from those two places, how that debt is leveraged and how the equity is leveraged and how it's treated in terms of the different investment vehicles that we offer within will vary. And that can get a little bit convoluted depending on your familiarity with the industry. But those are the two common places that Mix get it. They'll have some form of debt through banks, through life insurance companies, through hedge funds, through pension funds, and they'll have shareholders as well. I know you guys have stringent underwriting practices and you guys are super knowledgeable. Uh, but let's say a deal does go sideways and yeah. you've got maybe a burr or a flip property that just isn't going to be profitable for your lender. Maybe they're not owing up and paying. But I mean, of course, you guys have a risk to lose some money there, but you really, you still have an asset that you can offload. Like there's ways I'm sure you can minimize that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess is the question basically how do we work through loss scenarios? Yeah, exactly. How would you minimize that? I guess so like, you know, on paper, maybe you lent out half a million to buy a house and 100,000 for renos. And then, you know, the deal, unfortunately, I'm sure it's a low percentage, but let's say it doesn't work out. How are you guys going to minimize a loss on that? That's a great question. It's a part of the business, to be frank. If you're not losing, you're not trying. As much as some people don't want to admit that, you know, the uh, the plumber without any broken tools isn't going to work, right? So how we approach that at Calvert is, you know, one, at origination, we're really doing a lot of due diligence to make sure that we have a high degree of confidence in the probability of the file succeeding. And there's a bunch of different ways that we can look at that. Once we get into a file, though, you're in it. Say if the borrower ran out of money, money that was supposed to be allocated towards payments or construction has since gone away. We're following up with our clients to see what's changed and what we can do to help. And we're also committed to working with our clients to get a sense for, you know, how we can help them complete the job. So depending on what's untitled behind us or if nothing is untitled behind us, we can look at things like restructuring the loan, redoing the loan with other property, changing the rate of interest, advancing them funds for renovations, doing an interest holdback for payments. There's a lot of things that we can do to get creative. I've had some borrowers, especially in the Ontario market, which is a little bit more volatile than that of Alberta, who misspent some of their capital and were no longer able to make payments. And sometimes what we'll do is we'll say, okay, we'll hold off on action, i.e. enforcement, if you get us regular progress updates that the property is being completed. So we'll accept picture updates and inspections in lieu of payment to make sure that we actually have something to secure our capital to or to improve the value of our security. And the way that I like to do that personally is we frame it as a win-win for both sides. 
You know, at the end of the day, it's not just about us protecting our capital, but it's truly about us helping our borrowers too. A lot of our clients are repeat. And if we lose sight of that, then we're failing to serve a key stakeholder on the borrower side. So it's truly about how can we help our borrower? How can we use our knowledge and our resources to support them in the situation? And is it possible to create a win-win? And one of the other ways that I like to look at it too is when you get into that situation, okay, let's treat it like a new deal because things have changed since initial approval. What's the next best decision that we can make for the betterment of both parties? Yeah, that's great. And actually, when I was chatting with Sherwin offline, he had mentioned that there's been times I asked him basically, you know, what happens if you get a client that maybe just is maybe struggling to put a proper deal together? Maybe they keep bringing you guys things that wouldn't be profitable. So then you guys do your underwriting. And he had mentioned that there's been times you guys actually allow a client to come to your office and sit down with you guys and basically see what you do so they get a better understanding. Yeah. What I like to say is they're going into the deal eyes wide open. So I share my due diligence with them. I'll share our comparables. I let them know the strings that I'm tugging. If somebody wants to come in and meet with us, they're always welcome to do that. We have a bunch of meeting rooms. All the senior underwriters have their own offices that we can hold meetings in. I like to meet people over a meal, over coffee, to get a sense for what their goals are, what their pain points are, how a lender could better support them. It's all about the collaboration and understanding how we can support and create that value for our clients. Yeah, that's awesome. I really like that. The fact that you guys are just, it's almost like it's coaching built into it, into the yeah. learning process. Coaching and protection. Yes. Well, it's for the benefit, right? I view my job as being twofold. One, to provide a good return to our shareholder. The other, to provide value to our borrower. And most of the time, it's going to be with a flipper. And if I'm not helping them approve a deal that's going to put money in their pockets and I'm not doing my job. My job is to look after everybody's bottom line. For sure. This one wasn't on our questions, but has the flip tax impacted anything? Have you noticed any difference with investors? Has that impacted their bottom line? That's a great question. The quick answer is no. A lot of the people who are set up to flip have done so through a corporation. So the sale of inventory is taxed as business income. So it's a little bit different. Sometimes your mom and pop flippers who are maybe doing their first, second, or third, who haven't set up a corp yet or doing it in their first name, you know, the capital gains was being taxed already. So there's not too much new about this. It's just the narrative around flipping is unnecessarily negative, you know, because what flippers are doing actually, Corey, is they're not just taking homes and then reselling them at a higher value. What they're doing is improving the existing quality of housing stock. You know, these are homes that other people aren't going to buy most of the time because they need some TLC. People don't have money to fix up homes. These are properties that other lenders aren't lending on. So Canada has a housing shortage. Our clients do a phenomenal job at improving the quality of that housing stock, making it available. And the people that have been committed to making flipping homes their business, they've been undeterred by this. No, that's good to hear because I 100% agree with you. You know, we go into an old neighborhood, you basically have a new product because a property investor flipper has been there. He's made the street nicer. He's improved the comps for that street, right? So when that one sells, it's great for the neighbors. And, you know, when I've done open houses in some of these, the neighbors will come in and they'll tell me how poor of condition that property was in or, you know, like they're so thankful that this has been done. And we know that the flipper has gone to 
some of the local hardware stores, Lowe's, Home Depot, all yeah. the material, you know, the kitchen cabinets. All the, so there's jobs, there's spinoff. And I just don't get why I have a negative view of that. I love that you say that. You know, it's not even gentrification in some cases. It's preserving the existing character of our neighborhood. The alternative is, okay, you know, you have an RC2 lot with a big bungalow on it. Maybe the neighbors don't want that density there. So they renovate the place and make it nice and new again. They're employing local tradespeople. They're going to the local hardware stores. The environmental impact is lesser than tearing it down and building up a new one again, too. So there's a lot of benefit. You know, there's a difference between flippers and speculators. And I think a lot of people confuse the two. A speculator is somebody who's betting on appreciation or price that has not been market confirmed, whereas a flipper is looking at what people are buying, what people have a need for, and they're delivering a product purpose-built for that client. For sure, yeah. With the Ontario market being a bit more volatile, I think universally things have picked up and I think appreciation's kind of come back up, but there was a time it pulled back 15, 20%, depending on where you were. Did you guys have anybody that was kind of struggling in that moment and did they kind of wait? Did they play the waiting game and just hold on a little longer? Maybe if you could share stories. Yeah, you know, depending on which markets you're looking at, you hit the nail on the head. We've seen basically 20% price corrections from March 2022, peak to trough, 20% seems to be the average across the major markets in Ontario. Some people who got into trouble were the ones that bought at peak, highly levered, and did not make the improvements or did not execute their business plan. So those were the files that we did experience some pain on, both from a lending side, both on a client side. The people who were able to get in and get out quickly and still executed their plans those were the people that maybe didn't see as much profit or maybe took a little bit of a loss, but they lived to see another day. There's sadly been some flippers who did not do what they said they were going to do. They had multiple properties at once. You know, they could have been a little bit more stringently managed. And those are the people that might not be returning to real estate investing in the coming year or two. They're going to have to take some time to financially recover. But, you know, when you're playing the short-term game, Sometimes it can be tricky. I've also had some clients who bought at peak and have been able to hang on long enough that the market is going up again. And some files that we thought were in bigger trouble than they are today are actually being, I don't want to say bailed out, but the outlook is improving because the market conditions have recovered since they bought. So, you know, a little bit of everything, Corey, you know, you look at every single file and look at the data points that influence it and just try and make the next best decision and move forward for sure yeah and having obviously multiple exit strategies and in an ontario market that was just consistently appreciating you know month over month year over year with some big numbers and if your rental flip took longer than normal in an appreciating market it's like oh well we just made an extra you know 10 15 20 thousand dollars anyway but obviously when market corrects like that and does a dip then it's obviously scarier and yeah some people definitely their timing you know get burned for sure right yeah, for sure. When the rates started to go up, it was really interesting in Ontario because you'd have 20% price corrections in areas that had less than one month worth of inventory. The economics driving the price decreases were not sound, dare I say. You know, it's really crazy to see that because ultimately all commodities are governed by supply and demand balances. So seeing an area with such short supply go down so quickly, well, you know, of course, that's people reacting you know, the short-term demand, panic sellers, you know, the cost of mortgages going up significantly. You know, what some people did, again, being fast, being sharp with your list price was key. 
Other people were really wise, immediately started restructuring their debt. So they looked at what they had in their portfolio, what was cash flowing, what had equity. How can they relever existing properties to benefit the portfolio in whole? So really taking a holistic look to everything that they own, all the assets, all the debt, finding the most efficient way to lever that. We worked with some people on that as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That makes sense. So I just want to circle back. At the beginning of the show, we talked about you guys do bridge financing. And then it sounds like you do work with some people, maybe with some bruised credit. Can we kind of maybe start off with the bridge financing? Yeah, for sure. So bridge financing is used to literally bridge the purchase and sale of another property. So if somebody is mortgage-free, they're probably not going to be able to get a bridge loan from their bank because most banks aren't really profitable on a long-term mortgage until month 20, 24, somewhere in there. So they're not really interested in the short-term stuff. Or they have a mortgage approval on their house that they're buying, but the equity is frozen in their sale property. We're able to lever the property that's sold, if it's firm sold, sometimes up to 85% loan value, advance it to them on the closing day of their new house, and the new lenders are going to accept that because it's considered coming from own resources. So there's a lot of situations when this would apply, you know, when the bank can't help you, when you have frozen equity. But if your purchase and sale dates don't align, working with us, working with your mortgage broker is a great option because we can help you take possession of two homes at once to alleviate, you know, moving pain. Sometimes with senior citizens, this can be a little bit tricky. Sometimes people with families want to get the kids moved in slowly. So there's a lot of different scenarios when AAA clients wind up borrowing private just because, you know, life is easier that way. For sure. And then what kind of timelines would you typically see when you do bridge financing? Awesome question. I've done a one-day bridge loan. <laughs> really? Wow. One of my first mortgages in Ontario was one day. So of course, you know, we're making sure that we're charging a fair fee for something like that. The rate doesn't really matter because it's only for one day. I've also done bridge loans that have lasted up to six months. Most of the time, I would say, you know, people aren't too mismatched with their closing and their sale or their purchase and their sale. Rather, the bulk, I would say, wind up somewhere between that two and four week mark, but it can be That's anywhere up to six months. I can see that, you know, when, once you've moved multiple times in your life or many times like myself, you kind of get tired. And if the timelines didn't match, so you're like, oh, you always want to take possession before you have to sell, right? If not, you have to get storage containers and all that stuff. So I can yeah. see this being a, you know, a great solution for people that just want to move once, take possession, move, and then sell their property. Now, let's say it's a firm sale. They got the deposit. You guys do the bridge financing. And what happens if there's a hang up of the lawyers and actually the property isn't firm on that day, yeah, something falls through. What do you guys do in those scenarios? We just keep lending the money. <laughs> you know, if the sale collapses, typically the client is going to be eager to repay the debt. So they will relist the property immediately for sale. If it's an instance where the bridge just gets delayed a little bit, I'll just get on the phone, chat with the lawyer, chat with the broker, get a sense for what's delaying the file. And if we still believe it's probable that it's going to go through, we just wait it out and ride it out. Yeah, for sure. And then with the bruised credit, how would you guys solve someone's problem or create a solution for that? Great question. The answer is not so simple. It really depends on the situation. Sometimes you have people who have lost jobs. You know, typically it's because of a life event, illness, injury, family event, job event. Maybe their car blew up and they couldn't get to work something like that. You know, typically you want to link the credit challenge to a specific event. If it's somebody who's been habitually poor with credit, these are the people that are more likely to reoffend. Whereas if you can link it to a certain 
area and a certain time, you're just helping them recover from that. Say if they have a bunch of debt that they need to consolidate, you know, if they have multiple credit cards and lines of credits, you know, if you can replace five or six payments with one at an effective lower rate of interest than what they're paying, they're going to be saving on the interest rate. They're going to be saving on payment frequency and payment amount. They can use those savings, to, you know, get back on track or to clean up their credit and refinance out. So, you know, credit score is primarily impacted by repayment history and utilization. If you can get the utilization down, the score is going to go up pretty quickly, depending on what it is. And, you know, I've done some debt consolidation deals that paid out in three to four months, a score that was 550, that was just getting really punished by utilization, how much credit you're borrowing. Like if you're at or above your limit, it's really going to hurt your score. I've seen scores go from mid fives to low sevens in four months. Oh, that's and interesting. Anybody in the sevens is going to be bankable and we'll work with them on a game plan, how to budget in the meantime, depending on what their needs are. And we also have a cool debt consolidation tool that shows, hey, here's what you're paying today. Here's what you're paying if you restructure your mortgage and here's the exit strategy. So we're acknowledging the problem up front. We're going to counsel them to what success looks like. And we're working with a broker on the back end to make sure that they have a game plan to get them back into traditional financing. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really good. So how often are you guys seeing people do, uh, say, a burr strategy on a multifamily, maybe, you know, fourplex or something or greater? And then maybe they do the financing through you guys. They do the renovations, forced depreciation. And then maybe go to a commercial lender. That's one of my favorite property types or product types, I should say, to underwrite because it's purely about the income that the property is going to generate. And when you're working with multifamily investors, typically they're sophisticated buyers who know what rentals are going to cost and are typically well capitalized. And they understand the value of acquiring a distressed building or an underperforming building, increasing its net operating income and borrowing more from that with that product. People can buy with as little as 10% down. They have a plan to displace the tenants or hopefully they're getting uh, vacant possession. They make strategic renovations. We work with them on showing what we think the rents will be when it's done. You know, we use a cap rate or a gym approach to figure out what we think it'll be worth when it's done. Take the NOI, run it through. I built a little DSCR calculator. So depending on what your takeout lender's requirements are, We'll quarterback the back end and see how the building is going to debt service at the end too. So I love that product, you know, and to be frank, you know, rentals are at an all-time shortage right now. We need more quality rentals. We need more purpose-built rental product. And this is a great way to contribute towards that. Yeah, 100%. And then how many doors would it need to be, the building need to be in order to actually qualify for commercial lending? Again, another really good question. For us, it's less about door and it's more about dollar size of our loan. We're not really going to lend anything out above $1.5 million. That's typically our ceiling. Reason being for us is it's just a concentration measure. So, you know, rents are going to be different in every single city. In Toronto, that's probably not going to buy you many doors. In Thunder Bay, Ontario or Sudbury, Ontario, you know, you can buy a multifamily at like $65,000 a door sometimes. So it's more dictated by loan size rather than door count. You're seeing these deals come across your desk. You're seeing what these people are doing and you have the knowledge. Do you ever get tempted to, hey, I'm going to do some of this myself? <laughs> yeah, there's been a few times where I've worked on some flips and, you know, I've had some really big successes with my clients. Fortunate to work with people who have made a quarter million dollars on some flips. One guy, I think my record is 77, 78,000, but he turned it over in 21 days. Amazing. Possession to resale. 
So sometimes I would do some of those deals and think, you know, am I on the wrong end of this phone? Uh, <laughs> you know, it all comes out in the wash. My wife and I are heavily invested in Calvert and that's how we choose to invest in real estate. I'm an economics and data junkie and nerd. I am so useless on the tools. I've been meaning to replace our kitchen faucet and it's been sitting there for two years. <laughs> My <laughs> wife is not pleased, but she's very happy with the return that Calvert generates. So one of these, one of these days, Brian Bomber is going to show up at your house because she called him to fix your renos, right? You remember how <laughs> we used to do that? Yeah. Yeah. We got a nice new house. It's just the faucet's a little bit of a pain in the butt. So I got to get around to that soon. That's awesome. Can you maybe just give us an example of a successful burr where someone has gone in and used a commercial loan? Just even I know your numbers probably aren't going to be like, you know, exactly what they look like, but are you seeing this right across Canada or is there some more specific markets you're starting to see this in? Yeah. You know, some insight on burrs basically. One, I would say that any urban market is ripe for the burr strategy. The reason why is that population growth and population size are two data points, if you will, that are most strongly correlated with real estate values and rental rates as well. So you want to swim in the pool with the most amount of fish. So let's look in those big markets because people need rentals and real estate is transacting most frequently in those areas as well. You know, I mean, the ideal burr is you buy it, you put, you know, as little as $10,000 down, you refinance it up to 80% and you get all your money back. So, you know, I've done some files where somebody bought at around 250 and they put 50 grand worth of renos in. So they got 300 there. The property is worth 500 as complete. They refinance up to 80%. They pay back the existing private mortgage. They get back their rental funds. They put a hundred grand less carrying costs back in their pocket from the refinance. Turned over their cash. They now have a cash flowing asset and now they're looking for the next one. So I've done hundreds of those deals. If somebody's looking at a burr, we have a burr analyzer too. And basically we're saying, okay, you know, based off of your down rental closing and carrying and your mortgage, if this is your cash out refi at the end, here's how much cash you can put back in your pocket or here how much cash is going to be frozen in the deal. But based off of that, here's your ROI, here's your NPV, here's your IRR based off of your investment horizon. So there's a lot of different ways that we can look at it. The main thing is understanding the investor's criteria, whether or not the opportunity satisfies that. That's cool. Makes me want to come down and actually hang out at your office with you. <laughs> Anytime. Get some like, insight on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Definitely. How many investors are you seeing on a multifamily, maybe finance with you guys, do the burr, you know, and actually maybe do the MLI select CMHC? MLI select is the jackpot. We have a handful of clients who do that. You know, it's probably less than the flippers and, you know, the smaller burrs. The reason being is because your flip and your burr client is a super professional client. The people who are doing multiple doors through the multifamily properties, this is your more sophisticated investor, maybe one who's graduated from, you know, duplex, triplex, flips and burrs to multifamily because they're more well capitalized. So, you don't see as many of those people, but you know, we do a couple dozen of those a year, I would say. Now, why would you call the jackpot? Is it because you're getting a lower interest rate and you're getting, you know, the longer amortization, right? With the MLI select? Yeah. So why the MLI is the jackpot is you can refinance up to 95% loan to value, which doesn't exist. You can get 50 year amortization. So for those listeners on the call, amortization is a time which you have to repay a loan 
the longer period of time, think about it, you're stretching out that piece of money longer, that makes your payments smaller. That's better for your cash flow. And because it's insured, you're getting a cheaper rate too. So cash flow, longer time to repay the loan. And they're also going to incentivize you for some environmental benefits too. So if you're making the building more environmentally friendly, put simply, they're going to find ways to incentivize that through your takeout financing too. Other lenders aren't going to be able to go up to 95%. And they're also not going to be able to go to 50-year amortization too. You're going to get less money back on the refinance and you're going to have a shorter time to repay it. The net effect of that is you're putting less money back in your pocket and your payments are going to be higher. So MLI is considered the jackpot because you can pull almost all of the money out of the property. You're getting 95% of what that property is worth and you have forever to pay it back. Every single one I've seen has just been a cash flowing cow. And you're getting a ton of money when you leave the lawyer's office so you can go and do it again. Amazing. Makes me want to do it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> How do you guys view rural properties? Are most of these things happening in urban centers? They're all urban centers, Corey. You know, urban areas. You know, I was doing a presentation on the economics of real estate with an Ontario group a couple of weeks ago, and we were looking at rural areas, and some of them haven't had more than a 1% population increase in the last 15 years. So it's pretty stagnant. <laughs> and that doesn't bode well for the consumption of real estate, basically. Like I said, population growth, population size are the two key things that are going to contribute positively towards that. If you're not getting those two things, you're just not going to see that upward pressure or that upward demand on real estate. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, we're getting close to the end. I think you've shared some really valuable information. I'm sure you guys are going to get investors reaching out to you to find out more details. So to finish the show, I just want to ask you a couple of quick answer, more personal type questions. So what yeah. kind of stuff do you do with your downtime? With my downtime, I just got a bike. So I love biking. I go with the people at the wheelhouse in Calgary, just learning to bike and getting in shape with that. So that's really fun. Other than that, my wife and I are expecting our first child in October. So we're figuring that out. Baby classes soon. Thank you. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, we're super excited. So there's that. And, you know, just we're big outdoors people. We love skiing. We love being in the mountains, hiking, and we love doing that stuff with our dogs. So last weekend, we just went on a couple hikes, took the dogs with us and bombed around on the bike. Do you ever go kick a football for fun and just watch people stare at you like, how the hell did that ball just go that far? <laughs> not, not anymore. Not anymore. I, if I tried to kick like I used to a few years ago, I think my hamstring would snap off my femur. <laughs> yeah, okay, don't do that then. Okay, do you got a movie or a book you'd recommend? Yes, I would say, you know, movie or a book. I'm a big fan of Atomic Habits by James Clear. That's a goodie. Good to Great is a really good book too. I really enjoy the 5am club. That's just a book teaches you how to set up your day for success. You know, if you just roll out of bed and react, you're not taking any time to, you know, set up your day. So I really like that book for that. Movies, I like a ton. <laughs> it's tough to say. You know, TV shows, my wife and I are big into Ted Lasso, as I'm sure you can see with the believe sign behind me in my office. And then magazines, I like reading HBR, Harvard Business Review, a lot of good, you know, business insights on, you know, just how to work differently in business. That's awesome. The 5 a.m. I haven't read. I should get that one. I yeah, it's on audiobooks too. Audible. Nice. Right. And where's somewhere you'd like to travel, like a bucket list that you've never been? Mm. My wife and I want to do a summer Europe trip. So we've been over there a few times, but we always go around Christmas, but we haven't been in the summer. So 
in the coming year or two, we're probably going to do a Croatia, Spain, Portugal, Italy trip. We're probably going to have to split that up into two, but I would say those four countries are definitely on the list and we're pumped to do that soon. Amazing. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for being on the show. You've really provided a lot of value for the listeners. And for me, you actually got me thinking about things as well. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Awesome. Thank you for that, Corey. I appreciate it. And, you know, appreciate spending the time with you. People can reach out to me. My email address is probably best, rob at chmic.ca. They can Google Calvert Home Mortgage Investment Corporation, or they can look us up on Instagram too. And YouTube, we're always looking to put up a lot of content for real estate investors. And if you like it, give it the thumbs up and the follow. If there's something else that you want to see, let us know because we want to make sure that we're creating content and delivering content that's in best service of our audience. Awesome. And plus, there'll be links in the show notes as well. Wicked. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.